Let's pray. Father, would you give illumination? But more than that, would you give a, a quickening of your spirit to each heart here? Oh God, I pray that you would help the people here at the bridge catch the vision of multiplying disciples. And I pray that, God, you could help me be a catalyst to that today. Lord, would you speak through me? God, would you do your mighty work? Would you start a movement of disciples? Would you do something new and unique and fresh and exciting that we could be a part of it and just watch you, Lord, and give you the glory for what you're doing? In Jesus' name, amen. In the fourth chapter of 2 Timothy, Paul says, I'm already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I've fought the good fight, I've finished the course, I've kept the faith. Paul knows that he's about to die. The shadow of his imminent execution is looming over his head. And so he knows it's imperative that he make arrangements for the preservation of the truth once he's gone. He needs to make sure that the transmission of the gospel goes from him to other people, to other people in a pure state. And that's why he's writing to Timothy. That's what's on his heart. That's the burden of his soul. We know that because back in chapter 1, verse 13, he says, Retain the standard of sound words which you have heard from me and the faith and love which are in Christ Jesus. Guard through the Holy Spirit who dwells in us the treasure which has been entrusted to you. He says, Retain the standard, guard the treasure. Retain the standard, let's hold on to it, guard, protect the treasure of the gospel. You see, Paul is concerned that the standard of sound words, which is the apostolic body of doctrine, be passed on pure to the next generation, and that they in turn will pass it on pure to the following generation. That there's a pure transmission of the true gospel of Jesus Christ, that it wouldn't get lost, it wouldn't become corrupted. So it's not just enough for Timothy to preach it. Timothy needs to also entrust this gospel to faithful men who are going to be able to teach others also. Now, why is that important? Well, he tells us in verse 15 to 18, it's important because in Paul's ministry, there's been a wholesale defection. People are turning away from him. He says in verse 15, all who are in Asia turned away from me. So people are turning away from the gospel and they're turning away from Paul probably because it had become dangerous to live a Christian life. Emperor Nero was a, probably a, a madman from all the historical reports we have about him. And he is coming down hard with persecution against the Christian church. And so to publicly align yourself with Christianity like Paul was doing was a dangerous affair. And so people were turning away. They were becoming quiet. They were stopped keeping it to themselves and not speaking about this great gospel. But there was one bright exception, wasn't there? I love this fellow, Anesiphorus. We don't know too much about this man, except that he came to Rome, and he eagerly searched out Paul, and he found him, and he refreshed Paul. He probably brought him some food, and maybe some supplies, some Christian fellowship, and just encouraged his heart. 
So one bright spot, but aside from him, there's almost a wholesale defection within the Christian church of people being afraid of what could happen to them if they identify publicly as a Christian and preach boldly this gospel. So after Paul has digressed a little bit in verses 15 to 18, he comes back to the very same subject in chapter 2. The pure transmission of the gospel to the next generation. And he says to Timothy, You therefore, my son... Be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. You, therefore, in contrast to all these people who are turning away, you be different. You be strong. You be like an Esophorus who is willing to be loyal to me, even though it may cost him some suffering, which it did. You, therefore, my son, be strong. Be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. Now, isn't it interesting? He doesn't simply say, Timothy, be strong. That would be ridiculous because Timothy wasn't a strong man. Timothy was a timid man. Timothy was a weak man, just like we are. And if I told you, you know, you're an introvert, be an extrovert. Well, sorry, it doesn't work that way. I just can't flip the switch. I am who I am. It's kind of like telling a snail to run fast or an elephant to fly is to tell a weak man, just be strong. But he doesn't simply say, just be strong. He's not telling Timothy to, to grit his teeth and to clench his fists and to set his jaw and just do it, you know, as though he had the power within himself to muster it up. No, he says, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And if you know anything about the original language that the Bible is written in, this was in Greek. This verb is really interesting. I'm going to give you a little grammar lesson here because it's important for this word. The words be strong is present passive imperative. Let me explain that. Imperative means it's a command. Timothy's not suggesting this as one option among many. This is a command to Timothy. Secondly, it was passive. He's not telling Timothy to strengthen himself. He's telling He's telling Timothy to be strengthened. See, the action is done to him. And thirdly, it's in the present tense, which means it's in the ongoing, continual kind of thing. So let me paraphrase it for you. Timothy, I command you to continually be strengthened in the grace that comes from Christ Jesus. You catch that? So we're looking away from ourself. We're not looking inward. We're looking outward and we're trusting and relying upon the grace that comes from Jesus to give us the strength to do what we need to do. Now, why did Timothy need all this strength? Verse 2. He was being called to a particular ministry that was going to take a lot of strength to accomplish it. He says, The things which you've heard from me in the presence of many witnesses and trust these to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. So, Timothy is being called to a very responsible position where he needs to pass on and entrust to faithful men the body of apostolic doctrine that he has heard from Paul in the presence of many witnesses. Now, what exactly is the things which you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses? What exactly was Paul thinking about? Now, think with me here. Do you remember anything else in this letter so far that we've studied where Paul has talked about which you have heard from me? Does that ring a bell with anybody? Okay, go back to verse 13. 
retain the standard of sound words which you have heard from me. The exact same phrase is repeated again in 2 Timothy 2.2. That tells me that when Paul gets to 2 Timothy 2.2, he's talking about what he was previously talking about in 2 Timothy 1.13, which was the standard of sound words that Paul had passed on to Timothy. And we know what that is. That was Paul's whole body of apostolic doctrine that he had taught the church. We have the standard of sound words in our Bible today. Our New Testament. If you want the standard of sound words that Paul passed on to Timothy, just read Romans, 1st and 2nd Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, 1st and 2nd Thessalonians, 1st and 2nd Timothy, Titus, and Philemon. And you've got the standard of sound words. See, he's telling Timothy, you need grace and you need strength because you have a big job ahead of you. You need to take what I've taught you and you need to entrust it as a treasure, as a deposit, not to any old kind of people, but to faithful men. Now, who do you think was in Paul's mind when he talked about faithful men? Any guesses? My my best sanctified guess here is he's probably talking about the leadership of the church in Ephesus. Probably the elders, the pastors, primarily. Not exclusively, but they were the faithful men that had been raised up as shepherds to watch over the church at Ephesus. And he says, take this doctrine, take this treasure, this gospel, and trust it to these responsible leaders because they're going to teach others also. Now, that's simply an exposition of verse 1 and 2. I wanted to give an exposition before we did anything else. Just so you know what this meant in its historical context, when Paul delivered it to the church, or actually to Timothy, who was going to pass it on to others. But I want to draw a principle out from these verses and then make some application to us here at the bridge. And the principle is the principle of spiritual multiplication. It's the principle of one generation passing on the gospel to another, which passes it on to another, which passes it on to another. Do you see the four generations in verse 2? There's Paul, there's Timothy, there's faithful men, and there's others. Let me put it like this. In 1 Timothy 1.11, Paul talks about the glorious gospel of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. Well, who entrusted the gospel to Paul? Jesus Christ. Jesus gave him the gospel. He entrusted it as a treasure to Paul. And then in 2 Timothy 1.14, he talks about guard through the Holy Spirit who dwells in us the treasure which has been entrusted to you. My hunch is that Paul was the one who had entrusted the same gospel that Jesus gave him. He had entrusted it to Timothy. Now Timothy is to entrust this very same gospel to faithful men. And these faithful men are to teach that very same gospel to others. So you see this uh, four generations of spiritual multiplication taking place. And I wonder, Sean, if you could put up the first diagram just so people can kind of see that. Now what I've done is I haven't just taken Timothy... Because Paul was investing in more than one man during his lifetime. He was investing in Titus. uh, He was investing in Epaphras, Luke. There's lots of people. If you just read the epistles, probably a couple dozen people that Paul was pouring his life into. Well, what do these people do? They invested in faithful men. What do the faithful men do? They teach others also. Now, if Paul simply lined up 27 men and taught each one of them separately and individually the gospel, and it stopped there... That would be an example of addition. 
he's added 27 people who know this gospel. But that wasn't Paul's strategy. His strategy was to multiply himself and other people. So you've got one person here, and by the time he's done, there's 27 others, and that's just the beginning. Because these others are going to be teaching others who are going to be teaching others, and it's going to have a ripple effect that's going to reach the ends of the earth. So this is the principle I want to talk to you about today. The principle of spiritual multiplication. And what I want to do this morning is talk about the process of spiritual multiplication, the preventatives of spiritual multiplication, and then the power. And that's really exciting when we get to the power of spiritual multiplication. But first of all, the process. The process of spiritual multiplication is similar to physical reproduction and physical multiplication. What's the very first command God ever gave Adam and Eve? Anybody know? Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. He commanded all living things to reproduce after their kind. And if you look at anything that's alive, it reproduces itself. That blade of grass, the peach tree, the elephant, or the little tiny amoeba that you can't even see. All of these living organisms reproduce after their kind. And I don't think it was... It's, there's any different in the spiritual dimension. We have been born again by the Spirit of God. We're a new kind of creature, a new creature in Jesus Christ. And this new creature is also designed to reproduce itself after its kind. Now, of course, we know that only the Holy Spirit can actually do that work, but He uses us in the process. He uses us to bring the gospel while He supplies the power of the Spirit. And when the gospel and the power of the Spirit collide... They come together and unite. New life is produced. So it's very similar to physical reproduction. Think about Eve. Eve, for all we know, lived over 900 years. That's how people live in the very beginning. They just lived a long, long time. How many babies do you think Eve might have been able to have? <laughs> I don't even know how many she could have had. But let's say she could have had 100 babies. And let's say half of those are girls. Well, if she had... 50 girls, but all of them were born sterile, would that be an example of addition or multiplication? That's addition. But what if every one of those 50 girls had 50 other girls? What's that? That's multiplication. So that's, you got the idea. That's what we want to talk about, is spiritual multiplication. I believe that every child of God, normally, unless other factors come in to hinder it, can and should multiply themselves and other people. So that means you. If you're a born-again child of God, God wants you to reproduce yourself in a new child of God. Of course, it's, I, I feel funny saying that because I know it's only the work of the Spirit that can do that. But I think you understand my, my point that He uses us in the process to bring forth new life. And so it's every child of God. Even if you're just a few weeks old in the Lord, this should be your goal that, that God would use you to bring new life. In John 1.12, uh, the Bible says, For as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name, who are born not of blood, nor of the will of man, nor of the will of flesh, but of God. So, if you've been born of God, God wants to use you to bring other people to be born of God as well. To bring them into the spiritual realm. And it's not just pastors, and it's not just evangelists. It's every child of God. 
that can be used. That's what's exciting to me. That's when, when I dream of where we're going as a church, this is what I dream about. That people like Angela and Veronica will become disciple makers. I mean, that, that's what floats my boat. That's, that's what thrills me, is to think of, think of a movement of people being brought into the faith and multiplying themselves, and those people multiplying themselves, and to see real movement begin. So that's the process. Now, what's the responsibility of every parent for the child that they bring into the world? To train them? Is that what you said, Kelly? Okay. To train them? What else do you have to do for a baby? Nurture? Feed them? Right. You've got to protect them, right? Make sure no one steals them, kidnaps your baby, uh, take care of them. Well, every new child of God that comes into the spiritual realm also needs the same thing. They need to be fed, loved, protected, cared for, nurtured, and that's everybody's job. If you're a child of God, it's your job that God would use you in someone else's life like that. So that's the process. Now let's talk about the preventatives. What would prevent us from multiplying ourselves as disciples? Well, I'm going to give you four this morning to think about. Number one, lack of physical intimacy. Is it possible for a woman to bear a child without having physical intimacy with a man? No. Only in the case of Mary, the virgin mother of Jesus, did that ever happen, and I'm sure it's never going to be replicated again. There must be physical intimacy to bring forth physical children. And the same is true in the spiritual realm. If we want to be used in reproducing ourselves and making disciples, there must be intimacy with God. There must be communion with Christ. And so that's really why we work so hard with new Christians to try to help them develop an intimate, ongoing, consistent communion and fellowship with Jesus because they're never going to reproduce until they have that. In fact, some of us might be Christians for years and years and years and we still don't have that because we don't have good disciplined habits in our life. It takes discipline to develop that kind of intimacy with Christ. And so, maybe that's why the Lord isn't using us right now to reproduce ourselves and others. It's just, we're not really pursuing hard like that deer after the water. You know, he says, that as the deer pants for the water brook, so my soul pants for thee, O God. We need to really seek hard after the Lord, wanting to know Him, wanting to walk with Him wanting to fellowship with Him, to love Him and to serve Him and to know Him. That's our life. And if we are pursuing hard after the Lord and we're getting to know Him and we're living in intimacy with Him, now we're in the place where He can reproduce Himself through us and bring forth new life. That's the second one. That's immaturity. How many five-year-old little girls do you know that are having babies? I don't know any. (laughs) And thank God, right? What if every two, three, four, and five-year-old little girl was having babies? What would we do? There'd be no one to take care of them because they're not mature enough to know how to take care and be responsible for this new life. And so there has to be some maturing that takes place in a new Christian to where he can get to the point where he can assume responsibility to bring another one into the world and then care for that person. So spiritual maturity... Perhaps one of the reasons the Lord isn't using us to reproduce ourselves is because we're still immature spiritually. We're still like a little baby 
crawling around in diapers and sucking on a bottle when we should be actually eating meat and feeding others by this time. In fact, the writer to the Hebrews talks about that. He says in Hebrews 5.12, For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you have need again for someone to teach you the elementary principles of the oracles of God. And you have come to need milk and not solid food. For everyone who partakes only of milk is not accustomed to the word of righteousness, for he is a babe. But solid food is for the mature, who because of practice have their senses trained to discern good and evil. Now do you see what he's saying there? You guys ought to be teachers by now. I don't think he necessarily means like pastor teachers over the flock. I think he means you ought to be able to teach and instruct other young babes in Christ to establish them in the faith. But you're, you can't be a teacher because you're still a babe yourself. You're not growing. Your senses haven't been trained to discern that between good and evil. And so the Lord wants us to grow up, to mature in our faith, so that we can pour our lives into other people. So, physical intimacy can be a preventative. Immaturity can be another preventative. Let's talk about the third one. Toxins. Sometimes these are environmental toxins, like glues or pesticides or chemical dusts. And then the toxin of just tobacco. I, I was flabbergasted, but I learned this last week that a cigarette smoker has a 60% higher chance of becoming sterile than a non-cigarette smoker. These are toxins that can actually render someone infertile so that they cannot reproduce physically. But you know there is another toxin that we can take in that can render us infertile as well? That's the deadening influence of the world around us. It acts like a toxin in our life. John says, don't love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the boastful pride of life, it's not from the Father. It's from the world. And the world's passing away and also it's lusts. But the one who does the will of God abides forever. So don't love the world, he says. Paul says in Romans 12 too, don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. James says, you adulteresses. Let me read this one because I don't have it memorized. James 4, verses 4 and 5. You adulteresses, don't you know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you think that the scripture speaks to no purpose? He jealously desires the spirit which he has made to dwell in us. What that's telling us is that when we become a friend of the world and take in the toxins of the world or become an enemy of God. Rather than that, we are to shun the influences of the world and to be purified by the Word of God. Renew our minds. So, how does that work, Brian? It works if you're sitting in front of the television set hour after hour, you're taking in the deadly toxins of the world. You probably don't even know it. You don't even realize it. But those influences are beginning to filter their way in through your brain and they, they can shape and mold your value system. See, when we talk about the world, we're not talking about planet Earth. We're talking about a world system of ungodly, Christ-rejecting people who, who have their own value system. And it's not the glory of God. 
is the elevation of man, specifically themselves. And if we take in hour after hour of TV watching or secular music or worldly magazines or reading this particular uh, book or surfing the web to certain sites, we are taking in toxins. And we have to be careful because they can render you infertile. Do you want to reproduce? You have to be careful about taking in the world and the value system of the world. And you need to be transformed by God's Word, the renewing of your mind. Okay, so we've talked about lack of intimacy, immaturity, toxins. There's one more. And that's disease. Disease can make somebody infertile. Diabetes can do that. Uh, Thyroid disorders and adrenal disease can render someone infertile. And there is something that can come into our lives to make us infertile as well. It's like a disease. It's called sin. If we don't confess sin, repent of sin, and forsake sin, it gets into us like a disease and it permeates us and it renders us useless and unfruitful in the true knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. I don't want to be useless and unfruitful, do you? Don't you want to be useful to God? Fruitful, bringing forth the fruit of the Spirit and the fruit of new life? Then we cannot allow sin to go on unconfessed. When, when you know that there's a sin in your life, we need to immediately learn as a good habit just to confess that to the Lord and to ask Him to forgive us and give us grace to stop committing that sin again. So, the disease of sin. Those are some preventatives. Now let's talk about the power of spiritual multiplication. Imagine with me a checkerboard. You've all played checkers, right? Take one grain of rice and put it on the first square. Anybody know how many squares are in a checkerboard? 64. I looked it up on the internet, so it's got to be true. <laughs> 64 squares. When we put one grain of rice in the first square, and the second square, we double it. Now it's two. In the third square, now we've got four. In the fourth square, now we've got eight. How many grains of rice will we have when we get to the 64th square? (laughs) We're going to have enough rice to cover the entire United States, including Alaska and Hawaii, 17 feet deep. You say, wait a minute, how could that be possible? It's the power of multiplication. We're not talking about addition, we're talking about multiplication. Let's talk about another example. Um... Wouldn't it be great if we had such a powerful evangelist that he could win 1,000 people to Christ every single day? Wouldn't that be awesome? Like a a Billy Graham. Every day of the year, he's having these crusades and 1,000 people are being born again. How long would it take for the whole world to be converted through addition, through him simply adding 1,000 a day? Take 19,000 years. We only have about 6,000 years of recorded biblical history. So... Forget that method, right? If we want to win the world, it's never going to happen through addition, even through the most powerful evangelists. Well, let's say he could take, he could win 10,000 a day. It would still take him 1,982 years. That's almost the time from Christ to us. Still not going to work, is it? Well, let's say, okay, maybe he can win 100,000 people a day. I don't see how that's possible, because how can you even get that many people together? The biggest football stadiums in the nation, you know, they hold 60 or 70,000 people. But let's say just for the sake of argument, that we've got a super-powered Billy Graham who's winning 100,000 people every single day. How long is it going to take to win the world? 
if even that were possible. It would take 192 years. Most people would be dead before they ever heard the gospel presented to them. Right? Because we don't live 192 years. Now, take one person, and every year he reproduces himself, and the people he wins to Christ reproduce themselves. So, after one year, there's two people. After two years, there's four people. How many years would it take for that one person to win every single person on the planet? Take 33 years. 33 years. And if he kept going in the 34th year, he would have won 17 billion people, which is two and a half times our present population of the earth. I, we even have a, a chart here that Sean's going to show you. So these are, these are in billions. So you, you'll notice that the, the green line, that's multiplication. And it's like it's going straight across as though it's not doing anything until about the 30th year and then it slowly starts to rise and then about the 33rd, 34th year it shoots up almost straight up. That's what happens with the power of multiplication. And this is, this is showing you 100,000 people be con being converted every day. That's the purple line. But the green line is just one person starting a movement of disciple makers. Within his own generation, the world is one. Now we know that not all the world is going to become Christian. We know that. But this is just to the sake of illustrating a point that there is tremendous power in this idea of multiplication despise not the day of small beginnings okay we look around and we see about 20 25 people in the church who cares start with one and keep at it for 33 years multiply yourself and train every person you win to Christ to multiply themselves and train them and you're going to start a movement that is going to have far reaching implications one of the best known groups is the Navigators that is known for this process. I'm reading the uh, biography right now of Dawson Trotman. And this is what he, he... I don't know if he discovered this or whatever, but he, he came up with this principle and he, he labored at it. Rather than going for the mass evangelistic methods, he decided to work with one man and to pour his life into one man. And he trained every man that he won to Christ and trained to do the same thing. And they began to, um, to reach the sailors prior to World War II on the different ships. And these men would end up going on different ships and they would start winning people to Christ and discipling them and holding classes. And before they knew it, they had men on over a thousand ships. <laughs> in fact, one man, Lester, Lester Spencer, won another man to Christ and before they were done in his ship, 125 people had come to Christ. And it was a multiplying dynamic effect that took place. It's an exciting story to read. But that's the power of spiritual multiplication. Now, let's, let's apply all of this here to what we're doing at the bridge. Everybody know what our vision statement is? Maybe you don't, because some of you are new. We exist to glorify God by making disciples who make disciples. Well, how are we going to do that? It's great to say that, right? It's easy to say it, but we need some nuts and bolts how are we practically going to actually do that? Well, I put a lot of thought into that and I kind of want to roll out the red carpet today and actually take a look at a, a realistic process that we as the people of God can actually do to see that vision come to pass. Um, let's take a look at the next chart, Sean. Okay, look at the middle one there. Making disciples who make disciples. 
Think of this as sort of a baseball field. You've got home plate, first base, second base, and third base. Okay? You know what? I'm going to get my little point. Okay. So here we've got a lost person. What does that person need? Salvation. They need salvation. They need someone to evangelize them. That means to present the gospel to them. So, that's why we have the word evangelize here. Jesus commanded us in Mark 16, Go into all the world and preach the gospel to all creation. He who believes and is baptized shall be saved. He who disbelieves shall be condemned. So that's our marching orders from Jesus Christ. This isn't some wispy suggestion that we might get around to someday if we happen to feel extra spiritual. This is a command that every Christian needs to find a way to incorporate in his life. Okay? So we, we evangelize. Now at the bridge, how do we do that? There's lots of ways. But we have in place missional communities which exist primarily to make disciples, to target a specific group of people and bring the gospel to them. And we want to do that together as a community. That's why we have a group at Angela's house on Wednesday night and one at John's house on Thursday night. We want to reach people with the gospel and establish them in the faith. Now, in addition to that, the Lord is raising up uh, gospel teams that are going to the light rail and going to the gold rush days and doing open air preaching and uh, I'm knocking on doors. And so we have other ways we're doing this. And every Sunday the gospel is presented here at church. So there's many ways we do this, but the primary factor here is our missional communities. If someone responds in faith, what do they become? A new disciple. They reach first base. But first base isn't, they haven't, got, they haven't scored yet, right? They've got to come around the bases. <laughs> so what, what does a new disciple need? Instruction. They need to be established in their new faith. I'm going to read to you from Colossians chapter 2. If I can find it. Well, it's gone. Anybody want... Can you look up Colossians 2, 6, and 7? Someone read it real loud. So this new convert needs to be established. They need to be rooted. Just as they receive Christ by faith, they also begin to learn to walk by faith. So they're established and rooted. Now how are we going to get someone from first base to second base? Well, what we are envisioning here is discipling relationships. One of the most powerful things you can do is just a one-on-one friendship with someone, spending time in a relationship, in a friendship, where you pour your life into them and you teach them. You, and it's not just mental, intellectual communication of a fact from your head to theirs. It's modeling this. If the person who's working with somebody else can take them along with them when they, when they go share their faith or when they counsel somebody um, or if they can explain to them how they raise their kids or how they respond when they're angry and frustrated with their spouse. You know, they... You try to impart your life as well as the knowledge of the Scripture. In fact, we are working very hard right now on developing a manual. We've got about seven or eight sessions already done. And I can actually share a little bit of that with you. Um, I'm working with two men right now 
Debbie's working with two women, and praise God, Oleg is working with Fernando. Now, how's that for a praise report? God's doing a great work. And uh, so every week, we meet together for an hour or two or whatever it takes, and we spend time together, and we try to impart that which will help ground them and establish them. So, it comes in four modules. Module one is pursuing Christ. And this is what we're trying to impart. The gospel, repentance and faith, assurance of salvation, abiding in the word part one and part two, and prayer. Okay, module two. Loving God. Here are the sessions. The attributes of God, part one and part two. Delighting in God. Obeying Jesus. Resisting temptation. Walking by the Spirit. Module 3, Cultivating Godliness, Fellowship, Commitment to a Local Church, The Use of Time, The Use of Money and Possessions, Humility and Forgiveness, and then Module 4, Multiplying Disciples, Fasting, Contact Evangelism, Relationship Evangelism, The Cost of Discipleship, Reproducing Disciples, and Having a World Vision. So this is comes in 24 different sessions. If you did one a week, it would take you six months. If you do one every two weeks, it will take you a year. The, the time isn't all that important. What important. What's important is that the person you're working with catches this. And the manual is written so simply that almost, I, I would think every Christian would be able to work through it, the manual with somebody else and help them to learn those things and seek by their life to be able to model those things. Okay, so that's how we want to get people from first base to second base, to an established disciple. Now, once they're there, they may feel like, you know, I'm starting to really believe God is calling me to a particular thing. Might be counseling. Might be to be an evangelist. Might be a pastor. Maybe a youth work, uh, or a worship leader. Um, a particular kind of calling. And you might feel like, I really don't have what I need to be able to do that effectively. Well... So to get from second base to third base, we have evangelism and then establishing. The third one is equipping. And the Bible talks in Ephesians 4, 11, and 12 that pastor, teachers, evangelists are to equip the saints for the work of service. See, it's not the pastors who are supposed to do the work of service. They're supposed to equip everybody else to do the work of service. Now, they, they do the work of service too, but they're like a player coach. If you remember Pete Rose, he was a player coach. He could get in the game if he wanted. But most of the time he spent coaching, mentoring, and training. So that's the third leg. We're rounding second, going to third. Um, We want to equip. Now here at the bridge, we have something in place that we've been doing for about six months. We call it LTD. It's called Leadership Training and Development. And uh, there are three of us that meet one Saturday a month for four hours from 7 in the morning to 11. We're reading books on particular topics that will help us grow in our effectiveness in ministry. We've talked about things like holiness of life, uh, family life, humility. Help me out, guys. What else have we studied? Yeah, evangelism. That's right. Uh, The next one we're going to be talking about is eldership. What does that look like in the Bible? So... So there's equipping going on. And I, I realize we don't have anything in place for the women at this point, but that's, that's kind of a burden of mine. I want, I'm seeking the Lord as to what we can do to equip all God's saints. 
We're a young church, so we're still learning. We're still growing in these things. But this is what we've got in place at the present. We've got uh, a leadership training and development class, and there's also a group of guys that are meeting on Thursday morning before work, just talking through various aspects and uh, working through Scripture, and we're going to be praying through Scripture together. All right, there we go. Thank you. Well, let's say we've got somebody, somebody who's an equipped disciple, Really, the only thing left is for that person to be entrusted with particular ministry, and they end up as a worker. Have you, have you ever paid attention to the word worker in the New Testament? We don't talk about that word much, but it comes up all the time. So-and-so, a fellow worker of the gospel. Well, we want to raise up workers, and this worker ends up at the same place the lost person start started, because he is then going to begin working and winning someone to Christ, establishing them. He may or may not have a part in equipping them, or he may pass that person on to somebody else that will help. But this, this is the process. Any questions about what, what we're talking about today? Do you guys get it? Anybody overwhelmed? Like, I could never do that. No way. Sure. Yes. Good point. And, and I meant to say that. Yes. Yes. And I meant to say that I just forgot. Yeah, so, so once, you, once you reach first base, theoretically, I mean, John chapter 1, Philip goes and finds his brother the day he finds Jesus. And he says, come and see. <laughs> you know, So you can start sharing your newfound faith the moment you become a Christian. Um, you don't have to wait to reach home base, home play. So yeah, we want to be establishing people. And even as we're starting to establish them, we're wanting them to, to begin sharing with other people that they know what God has done in their life. Okay, so... I want you to think with me this morning. Where are you in this process? Are you a lost person? Have you never come to Christ before? If that's true of somebody here, then what you need is you need someone to explain to you the gospel. And if you're here but, and you're interested in becoming a Christian, but you really don't know what it means to follow Christ, you really don't know and understand the gospel, then talk to one of us. We would be delighted to sit down and share with you. In fact, when Veronica came her first Sunday, she told Debbie, um, I'm new here, but I'm, I'm kind of interested in knowing what it means to be a Christian. And Debbie said, would you like to meet and we can do a, a study together and we can look in the Bible and it can sh- you can learn for yourself what it means to become a Christian. And they started that that very week. And within five or six weeks, she began to see a change in her heart where the Lord was putting life into her. It was really exciting. So, if you're not a Christian, talk to one of us. We'd be delighted to share with you. If you're a new disciple, you need someone to begin working with you. So, if you don't have anybody, maybe you can ask around. Who, who, who's farther along than I am that has some time that would be willing to meet with me um, and talk to me? I'd, I can look out over the, the church here and see if I can find someone that might be able to work with you. If you're an established disciple, maybe you would like to have more training. And if that's the case, speak with me, and I'll see what we can do to help get you more equipping. 
And as time goes on, the Lord is going to raise up equipped disciples to be entrusted with, with ministry here at the bridge. We need more elders. We definitely need that because the Bible te- teaches that we should have a, a multiple number of men within the local church that are shepherding that church. So we're praying earnestly that God will raise up men to be elders and shepherds here at the bridge. Um, but this is the process, and I hope this whets your appetite that you can do this, that God could use you to have eternal, uh, et- an eternal effect. You know, this is different than, than straightening chairs. This is working with an immortal soul who's going to be in heaven or hell for all eternity. This is going to... When, when you're going to get to heaven, there will be people that you will see there that are going to thank you for investing their life in you. And so I want to, I want to exhort you and challenge you and motivate you this morning, if I can, to begin thinking about how can God use me to pour my life into somebody else and to see a disciple-making movement begin and to see a process of multiplication take place that the glory of Jesus Christ would fill the earth that other churches would be planted that God might end up sending some of us from the bridge to other parts of the world to preach the gospel and to plant churches there I mean the the sky is the limit you say Brian you're a big dreamer aren't you look you're talking to 20 people I'm a big dreamer because I've got a big God and this God can do anything and he's given us a command to obey. And by His grace, we're going to obey that command. Amen? Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Lord, would you seal this vision to the hearts of the people here so that we as one man can embrace it together and that we can lock arms together and that we can advance doing your will, doing what you've called us to do. I pray, Lord, if anything was confusing, that, Lord, you would... Uh, bring clarity. And I pray that you would cause there to be a deep desire in the hearts of your people to be used of you to actually accomplish something that is so eternally significant. Seeing life change in the life of an individual. A person who can then reproduce themselves in others. So would you do this for Jesus' sake, Lord. Amen.